Welcome to the Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network, presented by Coors Light. Go from full-time to game-time Coors Light, made to chill. Make sure you find the Raptor Show wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe, and please rate and review the show. I'm your host, Wayne Lou. I'm joined by co-host Blake Murphy for the full four segments. Uh, Alex Wong is away today. So uh, we have lots, though, to get to today. Alex has definitely stocked the rundown here. We have four guests, segment one. We have the Raptors' latest signing, who had a great game with the 905 yesterday. Uh, Jonte Porter will join us live on the program in segment one. We are then going to get to Mark Spears in segment two, talk a little bit about his piece on Giants of Africa and, uh, you know, the celebrations that took place in Toronto uh, last week. Segment three, we got friend of the program, Mark Stein, Checking with him. Let's see what happens with Draymond's suspension and just mm-hmm. what's going on in Golden State in general. Another uh, collapse last night and another, you know, very, very silly and irresponsible decision by Draymond to, to hit Yusuf Nurkic in the face for seemingly no reason. And then to wrap up segment four, we will have Steve Jones of uh, the Dunker Spot to discuss X's and O's, what's up with the Raptors, and also look a little bit at uh, the Raptors' opponent, tonight which will be the atlanta hawks but uh blake how you doing man i'm good man yeah the hawks for two games here so it'd be nice to get into a little of their tactical stuff with, with steve jones jr who for anyone who doesn't know in addition to the dunker spot former assistant coach at the nba level former video coordinator at the nba level so he should be able to give us some good insights into both of these teams uh who are going to see each other twice but man i was i was really happy last night basketball wise to see the 905 have a oh, really yeah. strong game. They've obviously started out this season with a ton of injuries. They were 1 and 11 coming into last night. Last night they get they get Mo Gay back, they get McCur Maker back. It's Jonte Porter's second game with the team after being signed by the Raptors. Marquise Noel is back. Justice Winslow makes his team debut. It is they had 11 players available last night, the first time all year. Yeah. That they had uh, more for, I believe it's the first time since the opener they had more than nine guys available. Um, so nice to see that they hammered Delaware. Mm-hmm. And this doesn't really matter because so little of the roster turns over, but they were the defending champs. Yeah. So you uh, you feel that way uh, a little bit for anyone who uh, thinks, oh, Delaware, where do I know that from? Uh, Jeff Doughton Jr. is on that team as well, but he has been hurt. He got hurt in the very first G League game. This year, so if you wondered why you haven't heard Jeff Doughton's name since uh, since he left Toronto, uh, that is why. I do have also a funny. I think it's a really funny and amusing note from the Delaware side of things. All right, hit me. So Delaware wins the championship last year. Their starting center in some of those games was Patrick McCaw. Okay, he's on okay. this team again this year. Yeah. Now you remember Patrick McCaw from his Raptors time as yeah, a super low usage guy, right? Yep. Like, never shot, never turned the ball over, just, like, didn't have a big role in the offense. He had a 9.4% usage rate with the Raptors. So 9.4%. And that was, like, NBA-level low usage rate. So keep that number in mind because his usage rate right now with Delaware in the G League is 7.4%. No, what? He is using fewer possessions at the G League level than he even did at the NBA level. Yo, it's pretty remarkable. He's been like crazy efficient, but it's because I like I so. think he only like takes open layups and dunks. Wow. Um, still solid defensively, still a decent passer and things like that. Obviously not on the NBA radar any longer if you are, uh, you know, averaging three points per game in the G League. But I found that hilarious as I was prepping for that game and going through some of the stats. Um, 7.4. That is like 
like my you've played ball with me before, and like <laughs> I, have, I think yeah. my usage rate w- is higher than seven point four percent. It's basically like PJ Tucker level. Actually, PJ Tucker might be double that. Honestly, PJ Tucker, yeah. I mean, uh, he has like NBA records for lowest usage over that's what I mean. yeah. you know X amount of time played. But to give you context, like PJ Tucker's usage rate this year was only like four percent. Four um, percent. Yeah, man. but if you look at the that's, that's Alex Wong's usage rate on air. The three years prior, it was eight point six percent. So yeah. he's like even less than PJ Tucker over the last three years. It's unbelievable uh, in terms of usage. It's I thought pretty, you were gonna say he's he had like a thirty percent usage in the G League no. now, and he's like lighting it up. No, because that, even that more would himself. make more sense. Like Lorenzo yeah. Brown, one year, I can't remember if it was the title year or the year after. What whenever Lorenzo Brown was going up and down a bunch, um, he had the highest usage rate in the G League and the lowest usage rate in the NBA at the same time. Like if I obviously have to play with the minutes filters to to get that in, but he was like doing a double dip of like nobody ever has had that level of a, of a whiplash. Um, So the 905 won yesterday. They They blow out Delaware. Mm -hmm. They get these pieces back. They did that by the way, without Javon Freeman Liberty, who's still out with an ankle injury and Jay Sean page, who's away um, with for a personal matter. And he had been their best player of late when everyone was thinned out. They're also without Omari Moore, who's a a good bench piece that not the G league standings Mm -hmm. reset in two weeks. Yeah. As of December 27th, because next week is the G league showcase. December 27th is when the second half second half gets going and the standings reset for a 34 game. They call it the regular season and that's that's what determines who makes the playoffs. So this 2 and 11 start gets erased. Thank goodness. Are you given what we've talked about, given what we saw last night, given what the names look like on paper? Are you buying that this 905 team could turn it around for the second part of this season? They have talent. It's just the talent hasn't been available um, which has been really unfortunate. Like, I've been feeling bad for our guy, Eric Khoury, just because it's like any coach is going to be having a very difficult time shuffling between seven and eight options um, on a night-in-night-out basis. Three but, emergency players yeah. uh, at some point. It's more important than what they do after the showcase. Yes, certainly. Um, and they're talking as if that is their mentality as well. Uh, Jonte Porter, who had a monster game last night, said something similar after the game. He had 27-9-4 and four with three steals and a block. Uh, knocked down four of his six threes, two really good games. Uh, so let's talk to him. Jonte Porter, a new center for Raptors 905, new two-way player for the Toronto Raptors, joins us now. Jonte, what's up, man? Welcome to Toronto. I oh, appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, thanks for coming on. How how has the adjustment been so far? I, I imagine the last three or four days have been like a bit of a whirlwind for you. Yeah, whirlwind's a good way to describe it, I guess. Um been traveling a lot. I flew to the team uh, in Maine to play with them. First game was a loss, but it was good to just be around the guys and everything. And then got back here and got a win last night. So uh, feeling good, man. It's been a whirlwind to say the least, but, you know, it's a blessing for sure. So you were um, with Detroit's G League affiliate and obviously putting up big numbers there, averaging a double-double, assists, blocks, things like that. Um, did you have an idea that you know, getting signed to a two-way was on the radar for you already. Usually these things tend to happen kind of coming out of the G League showcase. You you jumped the line a little bit here uh, timing-wise. Yeah, for sure. And no, to answer your question, it was not expected at all. I uh, had a morning shoot around with my team in Detroit. We were going to hit the road for like a five-hour bus ride to Chicago. Right before I got on the bus, my agent calls me like, hey, you're not – don't get on the bus. <laughs> we got an opportunity for you. So I, I knew Toronto was talking to me during the offseason uh, for me to join their G League team. But the two-way itself was never really on the table until it kind of happened. So 
like I said, it's a blessing for sure, uh, unexpected blessing, but yeah, I'm happy to be here. So, um, you know, a two-way wasn't on the table in the offseason, and I know it's been kind of an up-and-down road for you to get back to the NBA level um, after your time with the Grizzlies. How validating is it to get that call after, you know, the work you put in the offseason, the work you'd been able to do with Detroit's affiliate early on? Yeah, man. I mean, I know the work I put in. I know how healthy I feel, how good I feel. So to see that kind of manifest the results that it has is definitely a blessing. I've had people in my corner that have believed in me from the jump, but that hasn't always been the case for, you know, the average NBA fan and everything. They're kind of counting me out because of injuries. So to see uh, things unfold the way they have is nothing short of a blessing and I'm going to continue to cherish every day because I know there's a lot of people that would kill to be in my position. So um, you mentioned the Raptors had shown interest to you in the offseason. Uh, I remember being really interested in you for, on behalf of the 905 and the Raptors in 2019 when you were um, coming out of college and obviously had lost some time uh, due to injury there. Were there were the, you on the Raptors radar or vice versa coming out of the draft in, two, in 2019? Yeah, it was. So when I first got here, you know, you were shaking a lot of new hands, seeing a lot of new faces. A lot of the guys, like especially front office people, I was like, I remember you from somewhere. Um, the Raptors actually interviewed me during the combine and everything, and that was one of the teams that was really interested in me and vice versa. So <clears throat> I didn't necessarily remember everyone's names, but to see their faces and see it kind of come full circle from the interest four or five years ago to now where it kind of finally happens is really cool. I guess it, it kind of affirms too, you know, that obviously teams usually only select one, two, maybe three guys in the draft, but all those interviews and pre-draft workouts and things like that, they, they matter for uh, later down the line as well. Um, I know it's been a couple of years now, but what was it like for you going through the pre-draft process coming off of an injury? I, I know you dabbled in 2018, but didn't sign an agent and then went back in 2019 coming off of injury. Um, were, was most of that process just teams trying to figure out how healthy you were? Yeah, literally almost every single interview uh, in 2019 was the same. Like, how do you feel? What's your trajectory? Um, where's your mindset at? Because I had gone through the process the year before, like you had mentioned, and did all the same interviews with the same teams that were kind of interested in me. So the next year was all about when we be back on the floor um, because they already kind of knew my character and the guy I was. So it was more just the actual basketball aspect of it, which is most important. So... Uh, I don't really remember too much about the questions they were asking besides just trying to get a feel for how I was doing mentally and how I was doing physically at that point in time. Um, I, I know you're not a big social media guy, but are you aware at all that like in the 2019 draft, especially when we got to the second round and like the undrafted pool that like draft Twitter, the people who tweet a lot about the draft and follow this stuff really closely, you were like a favorite of draft. Everyone was like top of the undrafted free agent list. Jonte Porter is like the unofficial guy of draft Twitter. Was that on your radar at all? A little bit, not necessarily in 2019, especially after the injuries and everything. I kind of just hopped off social media because there was a lot of nasty things were being said that weren't good for an 18 year old at the time to be reading that's going through something that traumatic with all those injuries. So uh, when I first declared in 2018 i know it was definitely a favorite and at that point it was probably expected to be drafted if i stayed in the draft but uh at that point in time i was still one of the young guys that was kind of looking up their name and seeing what people had to say good or bad and there's definitely a lot of people with 200 300 followers or like chante Porter, top five talent in the draft like you know <laughs> that type of stuff there's always people that just fall in love with a certain prospect and I just so happened to somehow win that over for some people. Um, I'm sorry to hear about the the negative side of that, but glad the the positives were on your radar uh, as well. So you you had the injuries in college. Um, 
when you were with the Grizzlies, you know, you got a little bit of an opportunity, but only 11 NBA games, only a handful of G League games that year. Um, when you look at where you are right now and the path you've taken to this point through the injuries and not a ton of playing time, um, you're 24 now, you're, you're four years out of college. Do you, do you think that you have maybe more room to keep improving than an average 24-year-old or a person four years out of college because of, you know, how little time you've actually got to spend on the court? I think so, for sure. Um, like you mentioned in Memphis, I didn't get too much opportunity, mostly just because I literally couldn't suit up. We would be, that was one of the COVID years and like, you know, those hardship exemptions and all this stuff. And my body, like my knees were just crumbling every time I had a play group or practice, whatever. So that was really frustrating um, to know that I have to go out there and prove myself if I want to, you know, stay there long term and not be able, like not being able to um, was devastating. After Memphis waved me, I remember taking a year off and I wasn't sure I was going to play again just because I was like, man, I'd rather, I want to have my knees intact for when I start having kids. I want to be able to play basketball with them. And if I'm doing this every day, I just don't know. There's a lot bigger things in life for me than just, you know, the 20 plus years I've been playing basketball because I know my life's a lot longer than that. So I took a year off and really questioned if I wanted to play. My older brother, Michael, um, he was also going through back injuries and man, he, he was just in my corner the whole time telling me how special I was and it'd be a waste of God given talent to just throw that in the trash and not give it another go. So I took a year off. I was just like, okay, I'm just going to rehab, get stronger, all that stuff. Um, and then last year was my first year back started in the G league with the herd. And now here I am. So there really, since I played at Mizzou have not been a lot of games, not a lot of, uh, consistent games, I should say. And I'm just kind of getting in that groove where my body feels really good. My mindset is there. The results are starting to manifest like, you know, good opportunities as we see here with the Raptors. So I still feel like I'm, I mean, I know I'm 24 years old, but it almost feels like I'm just getting out of college and just stepping into this pro space and just stepping into what my potential could fully unlock. So I'm really excited for the Raptors being able to see something in me and hopefully I'm able to, um, you know, do them good by, producing on the court when you look at what the Raptors are trying to do what the 905 are trying to do to, to emulate the Raptors how much of do you how much do you see yourself as a fit because I know you're you know floor spacer and a good playmaker like a high IQ read the floor guy the Raptors are trying to go more to more of a you know high post DHO oriented offensive system how well do you see yourself fitting in with, with what the Raptors and 905 want to do here yeah, I mean, I've only been here a couple of days, um, and I'd be lying if I said I like watched the Raptors every night of the NBA season so far. I've kept up a little bit just because Darko is a coach. He was an assistant coach when I was in Memphis, so there's some familiar faces there. But yeah, I think my game um, is a little bit like Play-Doh. I, I can kind of be formed into whatever system is needed, I guess. And for the Raptors system, being able to play in the high post or up top on the key or space the floor or be a versatile defender, I think there's a lot of things in my game I'm able to do and obviously I have a lot of areas to get better but I said that to say like I, I think my game um, fits into what they have going on here and I think things that they're missing I'm able to kind of plug and play a little bit so I'm not sure how they're going to use me um, I'm not a five obviously I've played a couple games but with the Raptors I'm not sure how that'll look but either way I'm excited for the opportunity and hoping that I can just do my thing to the best of my ability and help, help our team get wins. Um, obviously, you know, in the G League, if any team comes and calls with a two-way, you've got to strongly consider it. Um, but how much does that relationship you have with Darko from the Memphis days, the relationship you have with Justice Winslow from the Memphis days as well, potentially help you here kind of get up to speed? 
it helps a ton. Um, first off, the terminology, like Darko's kind of adopted the same terminology that I was using in Memphis. So I know it's been a couple of years since I've been there, but it's really easy to pick it up. I had like a 30 minute practice the day before we played Maine um, and everything just clicked really easily. And the coach was like, oh, wow, you must be a super high IQ guy. I remember <laughs> everything. But I'm like, I just, I, it's implanted in here because we ran it every single day in Memphis. So that's made the transition really easy. Not only that, but just the type of guys they are. Darko, I haven't interacted with too much. Obviously, they were in New York and we were playing here, but um, I'm going to the game tonight and excited to see all those guys and just the way they've welcomed me with open arms, um, Justice especially, and just kind of making making it known that you're here to be Jonte and do your thing and uh, we're going to be alongside you for the ride. And last night was a good taste of you know a victory and hopefully we can keep that rolling with into the winter showcase and the regular season after that. When... When you were in Memphis with Darko, and again, I know you said you haven't interacted with him much uh, since getting to Toronto, but what do you remember about him? What was that relationship like? I'd imagine you're going to spend some time with him over the course of this year. Yeah, for sure. I think the thing that stuck with me most is just his positivity and the way he treated the top guy and John Morant the same as the guys that never touched the floor. Um, So if he's just on the sidelines sitting while we're doing our daily vitamin workouts, like if he sees something, he'll step in and not in a condescending way but in an encouraging way in a helpful way trying to make you the best player and person you can be uh i really appreciated that just because there's been other situations where coaches you know if you're not a guy that's really helping them win on a nightly basis on the court at least they don't treat you with the same respect or interest i guess is a better word but that was never the case with darko he's um treated the last guy on the bench the same as the star player and that's something that i think you know every single player on the team from the ground up can really appreciate. And I know I did for sure. Um, when you were with that Grizzlies team, uh, I, I know, you know, your relationship with justice, you, you told Kelsey O'Brien last night that, that he was at your wedding uh, in the, in the summer. Um, was Jonas Valanciunas your vet? Because like, I look at the roster and who was a more experienced big man and stuff. Like was JV your guy? Yeah. I mean, he was the main reason my knees were always hurting. <laughs> banging into my chest and everything. So uh, he wasn't the kindest vet. No, I'm just kidding. But he he was awesome. Um, he was just a guy's guy. Everyone in the locker room loved him. Uh, it was a bubble year, so like doing vet activities, having a vet show you around, everything wasn't necessarily present just because we all had to pretty much stay apart all the time besides when we were in practice. But yeah, him and Jaron Jackson, they were both great. I knew Jaron from childhood too. So those guys were just kind of showing me the ropes, helping me get acclimated to the Grizzlies culture and when JV got traded and all that stuff, that was a hard day for every guy in that Grizzlies roster just because everyone loves him as a dude. Yeah, I mean, he was very well-liked here. I remember going down to Memphis after he was traded during the championship season, and yeah, it seemed like he had found a good fit there kind of right away. Uh, speaking of championships, you mentioned your brother Michael earlier, Michael Porter Jr. of the Denver Nuggets, for anyone who doesn't know. Um, what was last year like for you watching him, you know, get back on the floor, stay healthy, and then make that championship run alongside Jamal and Jokic? Yeah, it's really cool to see all his – I mean, he's the hardest working guy I've ever been around. Um, and that's saying a lot because I've been around a lot of hard workers. So for him to be able to, despite his injuries that he went through, despite the ailments that are lingering today, the work ethic he puts in to see that manifest into a championship with those guys was really, really special, not only for him, obviously, but just for the rest of my family. We're also proud of him. I'm proud of him as a little brother, uh, and just as a best friend. So anytime I can talk about Michael Porter, uh, I'm going to take that opportunity and just give him all praise because he's, uh, 
probably the reason I'm still playing basketball today um, and probably the main reason I'm, I guess, as good of a basketball player as I am today just because he was the one forcing me to go to the gym with him in the mornings, um, forcing me to guard him in one-on-one, forcing me to pass him the ball when we were playing on the same team. So a lot of my, I guess, accolades, they're not accolades, um, but attributes uh, I owe to him just because growing up with the number one player in the country, being his teammate, you had to learn to pass the ball pretty well. It's uh, it's a little unfortunate that you'll be in Vegas for or in Orlando rather for the G League Showcase when they're here next week. Uh, that who knows, maybe maybe you're with the Raptors uh, at that point. Um, but that should be a lot of fun. H- how much do you still like get on the court with him? Like when you're working through the off season stuff like that, are, are you guys working out together a lot? We are. Um, it hasn't been always been the case since our Mizzou days. Just because if one of us is healthy, the other one's kind of injured. It's <laughs> kind of been the joke of the family. But we're both finally healthy. We both feel good. And this last summer, we got to get a lot of work in together in LA and Miami, and then back home in Missouri. So that's kind of our tradition. Is he has like his own personal chef and uh, strength trainer and all that. I'm not that big time yet, but. I definitely take advantage of those uh, amenities by traveling with them wherever they go and just getting working with them. So it usually ends in a, a shoving match or one-on-one <laughs> match, but uh, it's a lot of fun being with them. Nice. Um, you mentioned Mizzou. Uh, there are a handful of you guys in the NBA right now. Uh, Jordan Clarkson, you, you and, and Michael, obviously. Kobe Brown, Drew Smith, uh, my co-host, Will's favorite player, Demoy Hodge with, with the Lakers. Um, what is that fraternity like? Like, are you guys... Close, like I know there wasn't perfect overlap with, with all of your years there, but do you Mizzou guys kind of stay in touch uh, throughout the season? Yeah, and I think Dennis Gates, uh, the new Mizzou coach, though he didn't coach. Oh, we might have lost Jonte there. Let's give it a second. Um, yeah, I think we we lost Jonte there. We were about out of time with him anyway. Uh, we'll have to hear, uh, I guess, the Des Moines Hodge stories uh Another day, but that was uh, Jonte Porter, new 905 power forward slash center, new Raptors two-way player. Um, very cool to get to know him uh, a little bit there. Man, it's got to be wild to have a brother who you're in the same profession as as you can, and you guys can uh, can push each other. Uh, Will, what? any thoughts? We only have a couple minutes here before we break for Mark Spears, but uh, any thoughts coming out of that one? No, man. I mean, well, yes, I do have thoughts, but my biggest takeaway was just like, it was it was really fun to get to know him. Uh, great job on the interview. Uh, as as usual, what I do uh, is take a couple of notes just during the interview. And I thought, you know, he's a very interesting guy. Like, you know, he, he talked about things like he was very vulnerable talking about the fact that he wasn't mm-hmm. sure he was going to play again. Um, and he took a year off and, and how much that, you know, we don't really cover that so much because the assumption is just like every athlete is like super macho and they're going to get through everything no matter what. And this is the only thing that they live and play for. But it was actually refreshing to hear from him talk about, you know what, I've been playing basketball for 20 years and I need to look at the longer scope of my life. And sort yeah, of just got care. married, you know, yeah, look sure. at it. You mentioned wanting to have kids and things like that. I just think that like most athletes aren't vulnerable in that way. And it's actually really encouraging that, you know, he has his brother there, obviously, and Michael, who's also dealt with injuries. Uh, you know, Michael's, Michael's had a lot of back injuries. But yeah, the fact that they were able to support each other through that, I think is really, really nice um also having to play against the number one <laughs> uh recruit in the country is also you know i think both motivating but also at the same time like you could definitely tell that um it would also be so challenging but yeah i mean look at great, look man. at carlos boozer's kids right now right like one is like a consensus top prospect and the other uh 
the other is like a prospect, but a little further down. It's like, yeah, it's got to be. I mean, the Morris brothers would have would have went through sure. it as yeah. well, and they kind of changed at one point. Markeith was the better one, and then Marcus overtook him yeah, in the that, NBA. There was, there was a whole theory that uh, they just swapped jerseys, and yeah. no one really actually knew because they're so identical. Um, what else, man? Uh, he also, I liked his line. You know, my game is like Play-Doh. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm able to form and adapt to whatever the team needs. So, I think it's a. Um, yeah, I think I think it's just great to get to know him. Um, obviously, seeing him hit all those threes yesterday really yeah. was like, wow, you know, the Raptors could really use somebody like that. You know but. what the 905 tagline is going to be? I think me and Alex and the 905 account all tweeted it yesterday. They don't want to see the 905 healthy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know what? Who is they in this instance? You know, who, the rest is, who, of is, the G who is they? Oh, yeah? The G League doesn't yeah. you know what? No, but I, I am just actually really happy because, again, like when you go through this month that they've had and it's like a bit a month through hell, like it's just lots of injuries, really scary moments like when Moji fell over, uh, had the guy fall on him. Um, thankfully, he's okay and he got back on the court, yeah. as you mentioned. Um, even just Grady going down there and, and not immediately popping off and even all these questions about like where is he at in his development, you know, it, it's just I feel like they needed a win like a literal win and they got that win. And I feel like John's obviously playing a big part of that. So yeah. So that'll be, that'll be fun to watch. They're, they're playing again in Mississauga tomorrow. It's their last game before the G league showcase. So should be a lot of fun. Um, we should probably take a break and talk to Mark Spears, right? We should take this break, but before we go, who else was on your 2019 board, man? <laughs> Mr. Scout. So, uh, yeah. So I, I went back and found my tweets. I have it in a spreadsheet somewhere, but I yeah, had my sure. tweets handy from, uh, at number 59 in the draft who was top of my board for the Raptors to pick. They eventually took Dewan Hernandez. Mm -hmm. um, they had also considered O'Shea Brissett, Terrence Davis, Shamori Pons, who all ended up on the team at some point also, and now Jonte Porter. But at 59, the top of my board was Jonte Porter, mm -hmm. Lou Dort, Shamori Pons, which, uh, you know, uh, he, un undersized yeah. James Harden didn't work out. Terrence Davis, who obviously has had a couple years in the NBA back in the G League now. The G League. And then uh, Daquan Jeffries and Zach Norvell Jr., who haven't... Daquan Jeffries has had like yeah. a, a decent no, enough career for the 59th pick, but Zach Norvell Jr. didn't really uh, turn into much. Here's the thing uh, John Conchar was another name on my that's list. A, that's a really good one. Potentially available right now. Here's the thing. We're talking about the 59th pick. Candidates for the 59th pick. So for any of these players to have any sort of permanency or any sort of run in the league is already quite impressive, so... A hell of a list, man. This is why I keep saying you should be, uh, you know, 905 GM. But uh, we're going to take a quick break. <laughs> Been your host, Will Louis. You've been listening to the Raptors show on the Sports Radio Network. When we come back, let's talk to one of the Hall of Famers, uh, Mark Spears. Your daily dose of everything NFL. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Come here, host Wayne Lou. Great interview once again by my co-host Blake Murphy in segment one. For segment two, we are joined by Mark Spears of ESPN slash Anscape, but more importantly, uh, a Hall of Famer. What's going on? This might be the first time we had a Hall of Famer join us on the program. What's going on, Mark Spears? How you doing? <laughs> oh man, you you picked the bottom of the barrel, the Hall of Famers, then man. You know, no, nah, that was a. Uh... Uh, amazing honor uh, to get uh, the Kirk Gowdy Award and make it to the Hall of Fame a night, a weekend I'll never forget. And the ring's in this room somewhere. I can't tell you guys. Maybe maybe I should grab it before the show's up. <laughs> oh, wow. So it was, uh, it was, it was a, a beautiful occasion for me. I'll never forget, man. No, well-deserved. Honestly, well-deserved. Thank you. Uh, so 
we we brought you on the program because you were in Toronto recently uh, for Masai's annual Giants of Africa uh, gala, 20th anniversary. The celebrations continue from what they did in the festival this past summer. Uh, and you wrote about it over at Anscape. Um, actually, before we get into the story itself, just tell me about your history. Walk through your history a little bit with Masai Ujiri and, <laughs> you know, how far back that goes. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good question, man. I met Masai like 20 years ago. Um, golly, now we sound like OGs, right? <laughs> um, you in the Hall of Fame. You an OG confirmed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he um, he joined the Nuggets as a like a, a part-time international scout. And we just hit it off and hung out a little bit, had a few dinners. And, um, you know, he, he actually told me this story. I had totally forgotten about this, how I invited him to go to dinner during, a, I guess, a playoff uh uh, run by the Nuggets um, with Charles Barkley, and he had never met Charles Barkley before. And I guess Charles had uh, snuck out and paid the bill and told me and Masai to just just tell everybody he had something to go do. He he, he did an Irish goodbye, and mm. so I I had forgotten about that. Masai told me that story, but it it just to see his ascension is is quite amazing, man. Like to go from Nigeria to play Division Two ball to figure out a way to to get in with Orlando Magic part-time and then come to the Nuggets. And then the Nuggets to gain confidence in him to ultimately see him, you know, become the general man, uh, assistant general manager there and was incredible. Um, I, I, I mean, it's, his story is, is almost like a storybook one. So I'm like, to see him, to be a chairman now, the president of the Raptors, to making the impact he's making globally with what he's doing. I mean, it's truly like a Disney story. Like he, he needs, like Giannis has his story. They need a Maasai story too, because what he's been able to do, uh, what he's been able to impact with giants of Africa from his beginnings is, is absolutely stunning and incredible. When you talk to Maasai about this, we obviously see a little bit of it in Toronto. There, there's the GOA gala every year. There's usually something tied into a, a home game around that as well, and then obviously a, a number of members of the Raptors organization, even former members of the Raptors organization, still go back to these camps in Africa in the offseason. Yeah. So so we get to see a little bit of that, but in you, you know, being closer to it, knowing Masai o- over this time, how much time and sacrifice does Masai really put into this? Like, I, I'm not sure the average fan realizes the scope of just how big GOA is and how much Masai's put into it. Well, I'll give you an ex- amazing example, recent example of how uh, dynamic and uh, how much an impact Giants of Africa made. Uh, Shanae Agumake, as you guys know, is a co-worker of mine, WNBA star. Um, she she uh, does some NBA commentary for ESPN now. So she invited me to her wedding, and I went. And I should have called Masai, too, because... He he knows that Nigerian weddings when to show up, man. I was we were my wife and I were there way too early. <laughs> yeah, and they showed up like Masai just shows yeah. up like right when the door is open. I don't know how he knew we were there two hours earlier, um, but there was li- literally like forty grown men who came up to him and said thank you. Yeah, like the, the whole time I was at this wedding, they just kept coming up to him and saying thank you. In fact, Shanae's uh, um, um, husband was a GOA guy, too, who, you know, ended up playing college basketball, I think at the University of Miami, maybe. But um, 
you know, Precious Achua, he probably told me best. He said that that camp, like, they, I guess there's been over 40,000 kids who um, have played in that camp or and, and thousands have gotten college scholarships from it. Precious told me he thinks it impacts millions hmm. because a lot of those kids that were in the camp go back home and bring what they taught, not only just basketball, but about life uh, to to where they're from. And like Precious has his own camp now that was, I think, inspired by Giants of Africa as well. So, I mean, when, you, when you're around Maasai, especially in an African environment, it's like you're walking with, you know, royalty, man. I mean, the, these, these kids, uh, these African dignitaries, I mean, for him to like know Mandela and to have Obama come to Africa and to to just hang out with the president of Rwanda like it ain't nothing. Yep. That shows you what kind of uh, global um, impact that he truly has. Yeah. I mean, he could probably run for president in Nigeria and win. <laughs> I think he I think he got bigger things to deal with here in Toronto. No, I'm kidding. Uh, he I, I'm uh, really that's, happy. that's a I don't know if it's a bigger job than that. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, look, listen. Um, you know, it's really impressive to hear about it now. You know, they've built courts. They, their their goal is to build 100 courts. They've expanded their program. They got, um, I, th- I think, as recently as 2018, 2017, in that range, boys and girls both in the camps teaching them these lessons. They're across, like, 17, 18 different countries now. Like, the scope of it is, is just incredible. But I think, you know, what I really appreciated reading your piece was the really, really, truly humble beginnings of yeah. when the program started. And you had this great story in there about when he was with the Denver Nuggets, Masai asking them to help contribute towards this project. And you had both players and executives stepping up. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, no, I, I still remember it. Like, um, I'm probably kicking myself now because I, I should have wrote about it bigger at the time. But basically, Masai told Carmelo Anthony, Marcus Canby, the former Raptor, mm-hmm. Kenyon Martin and, and the rest of the guys on the team, like, hey, I'm started this camp in uh, in Nigeria, and a lot of these kids don't have shoes. So any extra shoes you have, can you please put it in this bin? And they had, like, this bin in the middle of the locker room, and Nuggets general manager at the time, Kiki Vandeway, an amazing guy who truly cares about people, he, he okayed it. And so Melo and Camby, Kenyon, other players were throwing tennis shoes and uh jackets and sweaters and stuff in there kenya martin actually put a like a chinchilla jacket in there (laughs) a fur coat like what what a kid in africa needs with a fur coat i don't know maybe there's some cold climates in africa somewhere i don't know about you can climb a mountain i guess yeah yeah you you know i I don't know that that got to use maybe Uh that didn't get mailed but those guys really um you know, helped out. And another interesting story as well is Masai was actually being courted by the Golden State Warriors Mm. from Chris Mullen to be an assistant GM there and also being courted by the Raptors. And Brian Colangelo basically said, hey, on top of your salary, if if you come work for the Raptors, I'll give you an extra $50,000 a year for your camp and for Giants of Africa camp. And I think that pushed it over the top for him to come work for the Raptors. Damn. And he was, you know, very, appre- I don't know, a lot of people know that story. He's very appreciative of Colangelo not only hiring him, but doing that. Because I think 
that bonus ended up putting the foundation for Giants of Africa. Like now, I mean, $50,000 in Nigeria certainly goes a long way for a camp. And that helped him pay for a lot of things and, and made it easier to get the camp done and basically build it into what it is today. So, I mean, I'm sure the camp would exist, but how much harder would it have been if the Raptors didn't give him $50,000 a year for the camp? And so, you know, shout out to Brian Colangelo because, uh, you know, when Masai was telling me that story, he actually got a little emotional uh, telling me that because I think he knows that without that, that gift, maybe the camp doesn't survive 20 years. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, now you look at it and, you know, I think Masai is so key to what the NBA's overall plans are in terms of building more infrastructure, um, building developmental pipelines in Africa. You know, obviously you got uh, the BAL, uh, the Basketball African League as well. And Masai's obviously, um, you know, always not far away from these kind of projects. I wonder now, like, what's the type of support the NBA puts towards these type of projects to sort of help supplement what Masai has been trying to do with his own will and his own time for the last 20 years? Well, Adam Silver has been to his camp and attended it. I've seen a picture with him with the Giants of Africa, like, polo shirt on, I believe. And, uh, you know, so different NBA coaches uh, attend. Um, I think, like, WNBA is involved because – since 2013, they've also had girls side of the camp, and it's an equal number. It's like 50 boys and 50 girls. And so right now, the NBA is putting tons of money into Africa um, with basketball, Africa League, um, with, with uh, you know, the Basketball Without Borders camp where both Siakam and, and Precious have, have played in. And so I think they see now, I mean, like, there's so many players like coming from Africa, but they're also like players with African ties, like Wimbenyana and, and Giannis that I think the, they feel like the next generation of superstars are coming from Africa. Once they have the ability to actually play basketball, like there's not a lot of courts, there's not a lot of gyms. Uh, I, I, I'm looking forward to the day and definitely the Raptors need to be a part of this game where there's like an NBA game or an NBA exhibition, like the same way you see in other countries in Africa, um, Senegal is to me is actually a good choice. They have the uh, Dakar arena and it's a six hour flight uh, from New York city, which means it's probably similar from Toronto. So I, I, I don't, I, I certainly would pr- push the NBA to do a game there probably between the Knicks and the, and the Raptors. That would be amazing to have a, a game in Dakar. I, I went to the Dakar arena and I think there's some, some things that they need to fix to make it more NBA ready. But I saw a preseason game in Mumbai between Toronto, not Toronto, I'm sorry, Sacramento and Indiana, where they basically took some makeshift warehouse and made it into a 3,000-seat no. arena. No. And there was a bunch of dogs and cats and birds in the place and they had to clean the place up. So if they, if they could right. work that miracle, they could fix the Dakar Arena to make it NBA ready. And so I, I really think it's time for uh, the NBA to put a game there. It's a six-hour flight, man. Yeah. It's like you guys flying to San Francisco or something like that. Uh, it, w- it would mean so much to the continent. It would mean so much to Senegal. It's not a bad flight. Uh, they could they could go to Gory Island and do that 
painful yet meaningful historical mm -hmm. tour. Right. They could go to Sally Beach and hang out like I got to do when I went to uh, Senegal a couple years ago. So I'm I'm pushing for the NBA to do that. Mark, I know we got to let you go, but quickly before before we do, uh, how much does WWE need to get in on this as well? Because one, my favorite conversation I've ever had with Masai about Giants of Africa is about Omos, who is in WWE and came to the United States through basketball, through the Giants of Africa program. Yeah. And now, you know, we're talking an NBA game there. We might get like a WWE main event there with, with uh, you know, products of Giants of Africa as well. Well, maybe maybe you have WWE one night, right, and then uh, the basketball game the next night, or 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 maybe you have Masai wrestle the guy at halftime. <laughs> that would be great. Uh, I, I tried to get Masai to say he'd come out next time WWE's in Toronto. They're here like one, yeah. like two times a year or whatever. Couldn't get him to commit though. He, not even uh, not even for a Giants of Africa can product. You, can you just see him like jumping off the ropes? <laughs> If you're screaming, Side kicking somebody. Yeah. You're screaming F Brooklyn. No, I'm kidding. I'm Look, kidding. if Dennis Rodman can do it, I'm sure Masai could do it. Hey, it's, it's all a play when you think about it, right? It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, anything could happen in a play. Yeah. Well, Mark, we appreciate you for joining us. Oh, my bad. I'm not supposed to say that wrestling's not No, good. no. You're, right. you're good. You're good. You're all good. Just okay. as long as people watch it on the Sportsnet network of channels, uh, it, it yeah. doesn't have to be too real, you know? Yeah. Well, listen, Mark, we appreciate you. Thank you for joining us. And uh, thank you for helping tell that story. You know, I mean, we'll, we'll be we'll be calling you again in the future for more Maasai stories for sure. And I I, I got a feeling you got more. Got a feeling. I, I have a few. Yeah, I have a few. There you go. All right, guys, take care. All right. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. That's uh, Mark Spears of ESPN and Anscape, and like literally a Hall of Famer. Like that's that's awesome, man. That's yeah, I mean, he's uh, he's one of the best to do it, and real. obviously, yeah. uh, uh, you know, a trailblazer as a black journalist in the NBA space at the national level. So, yeah. um, you know, and, and obviously caring so deeply about the people side of things in addition to the basketball side, that's why, you know, someone like Masai Ujiri trusts Mark Spears with telling that GOA story on, on mm -hmm. such a big night for him at the 20-year uh, gala. Yeah. Um, I got to meet, uh, so last year, speaking of the gala, last year I went to uh, the media portion of the gala. So typically, unless you're Mark Spears, uh, you know, or some of the presenters. Uh, yeah, you're not getting you're, a you're table. You're red carpet, but then, you know, they're like, all right, the event's actually starting. You guys got to dip, uh, which is all good. It's, it's all fine. Um, but I got to meet the wrestler you're mentioning. Omos. Omos. Yeah, yeah, Jordan. He is like, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't watch wrestling. So I, I'm sure wrestling fans already know this, but the guy's like at least 6'9". Six, six, He's 7'3". Okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. Sorry. And like this is I was really understanding it. This never isn't mind. like like WWE's famous for like Kane and the Undertaker are seven feet tall, and then you see them like up against like I don't know Billy Gunn, and they're like the same size, and and okay. that's just like a normal tall guy. And also, a lot of these guys played college basketball. If you're like a seven footer, yeah, so you sure. Can go back and see what they were listed as. Omos played college basketball. He was listed at seven foot three. Yeah. Okay. So I was totally underselling him. Maybe I, sh I shook his hand while we were sitting or something. But <laughs> that'd be yeah. a big hand. I, I did like I spent like an hour on Zoom with him in the off season because I wrote uh. a, a story about this for Sportsnet.ca mm -hmm. about how you know I tried to tie it into the twentieth anniversary sure. of Giants yeah. of Africa. How yeah, Masai. And that program helped him yeah. and his family, you know, with the transition for him to, you know, first high school, like prep school mm -hmm. basketball and then into college basketball and the support that they give the families, not only getting there, but, you know, this is a 17-year-old kid who's never been outside of Nigeria at that mm -hmm. point. He's in the United States and things like that. Um, it was fascinating. He's a, he's a really fascinating person 
um, and like obviously speaks the world of Masai, other than the fact that Masai won't go out to a match. Yet. Yeah. Wow. Come on, Masai, come through. But yet, uh, I would actually love to see Masai at a WWE event. Uh, I, I'm sure you will be there. Um, no matter <laughs> Pro- what. Probably. We're <laughs> we're a sponsor. You you got to watch your Monday Night Raws and your Friday Night Smackdowns on on Sportsnet 360. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's one of the examples where, you know, I think people think about you know this so much as like an NBA fan of like okay. The side runs the program, so who is he going to get for the team through this program? That is not the point of the program. No, I mean, like, Precious is on the the Raptors, and there was the joke that Masai made after the acquisition of, like, finally, I got you. Yeah. But, like, Masai is not doing this to have a scouting advantage. First of all, if someone blows up at a GOA camp, like, they're going to be in the Basketball Without Borders camp. Like, in yeah, 2023, sure. yeah. there's no way to hide a prospect by giving them more opportunity and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I, I don't know if any, if people realize it, but like Charles Bassey of the Spurs, who actually, unfortunately we found out yesterday is done for the season, but okay. he came through the GOA program as well. And then ended up at, you know, Western Kentucky was a second round pick, but that's another success story. And I think too, the other part of this is like GOA does not measure success by like how many guys do we get to the NBA or to the NCAA. It's, it's building infrastructure where mm-hmm. people could just play the sport more and, you know, all of the team building and life skills that you learn through sport, um, the fact that there are, you know, more feet on the ground there in the off seasons and things like that. Like I would imagine GOA is having an impact beyond just basketball where it's probably helping athletics in general in those places they visit um, and and certainly helping people, even if they don't go on to play basketball at a college or pro level, like Mm -hmm. really with the the life skills and the opportunity and just, I mean, the fun of, of having, ready to go basketball courts when you didn't have one before. Yeah. Um, you know, we were able to, we had a great opportunity to chat with Sarah Chan, who does, um, I think he's, she's the director of African scouting for the Toronto Raptors. Um, but also she got connected to the job through GOA and running the GOA camps. And, you know, when you hear like the people who are actively like putting the camps on and sort of like, and I mean putting the camps on is like literally doing the drills and, and, and being the counselors for their day-to-day activities. Like you you get to understand that it's like it's really about building people and it's about building connections for people. She talked about sort of how rare it is, for example, this summer when they had their 20th anniversary, how rare it was to have so many countries all in the same place um, to sort of get everybody to drop their guards, to come together. Uh, and yeah, it's really about like be obviously the the ultimate goal is to get people to play professional basketball if at all possible but it's connecting people to you know uh scholarships to to networks to to get themselves to improve their standard of living whether they're at home or even abroad and yeah it's just a beautiful story anytime we get the chance to talk about it, it's great there's no transition possible <laughs> to talk about the the raptors threatening to counter sue the knicks but we do have yeah. two minutes on this yeah, do you, uh, you want just the high-level update? Um, so Yeah, what's going on? Uh, Mike Borkanov at The Athletic yesterday. So Monday was the day the Raptors had to respond in court filings, and mm-hmm. it doesn't sound like this is going to end without at least, you know, getting to the deposition stage like we talked to Fred Katz about the other day because um, the Raptors said, and this is a, a quote from their filing via Mike Borkanov of The Athletic, the Knicks lawsuit filed in August was designed to maintain publicity for their allegations of the theft of proprietary team information MLSE has now raised the possibility of a countersuit and said again that it's more appropriate for Adam Silver to resolve this case. And then the Raptors say if the Knicks were genuinely concerned that there had been misuse of confidential and proprietary information, they would have accepted the Raptors invitation to cooperate in the first place. 
and go through the NBA um, and, and investigate those allegations. Um, but this is a uh, what they called lengthy judicial proceedings. And the Knicks' aversion to Adam Silver's jurisdiction is just because they know they won't like his determination. They know. So the Raptors are basically saying not only is this frivolous and wasting the court's time and money, but the only reason the Knicks are doing it in the court is because A, they know they're going to lose eventually, and B, because they know they're going to lose, they would at least like to have the negative publicity and take the Raptors and the NBA's name through the mud. And now the Raptors are basically saying, well, if you if you want to push for this, it opens up the window for us to counterclaim um, because you're making defamatory, defamatory and untrue statements. Mm. Defamatory. Why did I have so much trouble with that word? Uh, you know, it, it's not something that we would typically talk about. But I mean, yeah, at the same time, like, I agree with you. And I think I agree with uh, this is actually very similar to when we first thought about this. So I'm happy that they vocalized it in this way. It's just like, if the Knicks feel aggrieved on a basketball level, it makes much more sense for Adam Silver to deal with this because you could potentially get a first round pick or a second round pick or any sort of compensation that would at least sort of balance out so to speak what would happen here i don't even think it'll even get that far uh but if you insist on taking it to the court then what are you specifically doing it's not really going to benefit the knicks beyond potentially getting some money out of this and you're definitely spending a lot of money getting this lawsuit off the ground but hey listen it's it's an ongoing storyline and uh we'll we'll keep tracking it uh but we're going to take another break i've been your host will you've been listening to the raptor show on the sports Night radio network when we come back let's talk about draymond green and uh the latest thing that he did Breaking down the top stories in hockey and Elliot Friedman every day. The Jeff Merrick Show. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I'm your host, Web Luke. to be joined by co-host Blake Murphy. And this NBA Insider is presented by Coors Light. Go from full-time to game-time Coors Light, made to chill. Joining us on the program once again is Mark Stein. What's going on, man? Guys, I'm good. How's it going over there? We are, we are doing well. We are doing. We are here once again to ask you what's going to happen to Draymond Green. It's, uh, it's, it's, it would be funny if it wasn't so, like, just stupid what Draymond is doing. Like, he got himself ejected from... Yesterday's game, the Warriors were doing okay, doing decently. Like, it was a winnable game. It's uh, the Suns without KD, and all of a sudden, Draymond, because I don't even know, there wasn't even that much lead-up to it. It was like, maybe got his jersey slightly grabbed. That's like a, no, the most normal basketball play possible. Decided to spin around and smack uh, Yusuf Nurkic in the face, getting himself ejected. He did apologize to Yusuf Nurkic. He said he didn't mean to do it, but, like, after the 20th time you've used the same apology, it's... Uh, does kind of ring a little hollow at certain points. But uh, it's funny because I think we asked you exactly what was going to happen like when he choked out Rudy Gobert. Like, that was only a month ago. So uh, I'm not sure if you have new thoughts on on what the league might do uh, in response to what Draymond did this latest time. Well, look, I think as a basketball public, we're in unison now on, you know, suspension watch again, waiting to see how the league is going to handle this. But you know, the league has already given us the verbiage. You know, they have said that past actions factor in. And so by definition, 
that would have to make this suspension longer than the five games he just received for the Rudy Gobert incident. And look, this was only his sixth game back from that suspension. And yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I, the league, it's, you know, the league used that same verbiage when they suspended Draymond in the playoffs for the soccer style, soccer style stamp on DeMontis Sabonis, but that was only a one game suspension. So they use that, they use that phrasing but only it was a one game penalty and then they they upped it to five for the Gobert incident and that was frankly more than I was expecting because I've just you're you're always taking a risk trying to predict what they're going to do because it's really hard to find consistency when you study these things but I've just become conditioned to expecting the penalties to be on the low side so the five games for Gobert surprised me in terms of suspension length, but this time I, I you know, I, I think it would be shocked if it came in at less than five after they just told us that your, you know, your uh, your resume in in terms of this stuff is a factor. Yeah, the resume is really really troubling because if we just run through essentially the last like fourteen fifteen months of Draymond Green in the NBA, uh, it starts with. Um, the punch that he threw at Jordan Poole in practice. Uh, then you go to the conclusion of that season, this past season. He stomps on DeMontis Sabonis' chest, as you mentioned. Uh, then a month ago, he chokes out Rudy Gobert. Um, not even that prompted, honestly. He was kind of dragging his teammate from like a scuffle, but obviously he took it way too far. And now he's done this like random punch at Yusuf Nurkic, like, I don't even know. I, I can't remember another NBA player that's gone on this, like, have four incidents essentially in the span of, like, a year. Like, what what's going on with him? Night, you know? I think last night we saw, you know, we, we saw some exasperation from Steve Kerr because right. Steve Kerr has always been one of Draymond's foremost supporters and, you know, ha- tells us, and he said again last night, we are not, the same team without this guy we need Draymond Green for this team to reach its ceiling and play to its maximum capacity but last night I mean you know he was terse up there and there was there was clear to me you know exasperation that again just six games you know having him back for just six games and they're answering all the same questions again so if you're the league and Draymond is such a repeat offender. He's racked up over $2 million in fines and, and more with missed game time and stuff like that in the past. This, he, Like you said, he just got back. Like, what are the conversations like when the league sits down with him? Like, even after last time, he came out and said, I'm paraphrasing here, but he thought it was unfair that his history was being used against him rather than isolating that, that one new incident. Like, how does the league get through to him at this point? I think, you know, there, that's why the suspension is going to have to be severe that, you know, obviously Draymond gave an explanation last night. He said he was trying to sell a call, free himself, took a swing and, you know, it landed where he didn't want it to land. But, you know, is the league going to accept that explanation? I mean, that's why I think around the league expectation is. And again, these are, you know, maybe they're educated guesses, but it's a lot of guessing going on and everybody you know, every team is watching this as well because 
they want to see how the league is going to react. But, you know, you would think that the only way to really send a message here is to make this suspension very severe because, you know, again, they, you know, they've established that, you know, they definitely, the league office definitely left the impression after the last suspension that if something else happened again, the next suspension would be more severe. So now everyone wants to see, will the league office actually live up to that? And, I, you know, we will find out by tomorrow for sure. The Warriors don't play until tomorrow night. So the way the league typically handles these things, you know, they, they just want to make the decision before the next game. So technically they could take all of today to do all their interviews and have all their behind closed door meetings and wait until tomorrow to announce this. But, you know, there's so much interest in it. I think it would be on some level surprising if it took that long. Yeah. I mean, from the Warriors' perspective, like, look, obviously they've won four titles with Draymond. Um, they are, they've rewarded him with multiple contracts. He's um, been like an integral piece to everything they've done. And part of that is the fact that he's willing to play on the line and even go over the line sometimes. We all can think about great teams that have had players like this, but – it just seems like this year, um, the Warriors as a whole have definitely dropped so many games that were winnable. Um, you know, so many games where they were in the lead and then they just come completely undone. Like when I watch the Warriors, I see Steph Curry being great. I see some young guys in Kaminga, Moody, uh, Brandon Pajemski. They end up doing like pretty well. I'm pretty happy with sort of what I'm seeing from them. But then I just see this like chaos, this like, um, this inability to get out of their own way. I don't know what the, what's frustrating them. I don't know what the lack of discipline is, but it's usually from the vets. I mean, like, Mark, what's what's happening with the Warriors? Because it feels like they're just going to flush an entire prime season of Steph for no really good reason, honestly, other than just poor discipline. Yeah, and that's what makes this thing so complicated for them. They, they've got a lot of issues that mm-hmm. they're dealing with, not just, Raymond Green and, you know, Clay Thompson struggles. Andrew Wiggins struggles have been, you know, even more pronounced. Yep. And they're just, you know, they are, they're just, they are not close to what we expected. And we talk so much about LeBron James turning back the clock and LeBron James is about to turn 39. Well, Steph is doing a lot of the same stuff. Steph will be 36 in March and is still playing at a remarkably high level. I mean, he is fantastic and they're just, you know, he, he's, you know, the gap between him and the rest of his team is as pronounced as it's ever been in terms of current production. And look, but you know, the circumstances are obviously the warriors are, are in this category unto themselves because, they won four titles in eight years. And we just don't see that in the modern NBA. And it's, it's not easy to move on from that. You don't just discard guys who were key contributors to that kind of incredible run. And, you know, I think in the media, a lot of us were hesitant. You know, we all want to give the Warriors the benefit of the doubt that they can figure this out mm-hmm. and turn it around because, you know, they, they did it as recently as two seasons ago by going on a championship run that, that not a lot of us forecasted in advance. But, you know, it, it doesn't go on forever. And it's, 
you know, when it does start to go the other way, it's, it's unpleasant because again, you know, it's just, they're facing circumstances that, that no other team is really looking at right now in terms of moving on. I mean, you saw what a big deal it was last night that Steve Kerr went away from Clay and Wiggins and Kavon Looney and crunch time to play the younger guy, you know, even that was a major, major departure, and and really the first time that 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 that's happened for Clay Thompson. So I mean, there there's a lot going on that the Warriors have to deal with in a West that is very crowded, and you, you know you cannot lose ground if you want to make the playoffs in the West because I mean it's you know there's eleven or twelve good teams. And they're already two and a half games back of the play-in, which obviously, you know, there's a lot of season left, but they're in a hole. They, they've already dug themselves a hole. Um, Mark, we, we did a lot of the clay stuff a, a couple weeks ago when you were on with us. Wiggins, though, this is pretty remarkable in how across the board his poor season is now. You look at shooting, passing, rebounding, basic stats, advanced metrics, everything is down across the board. He's only 28 still, and, and I think you know, at least in that championship year, they thought maybe he's a guy who could help stave off some of the aging curve decline from some of the other players because he was still in his peak. And now I look at the way he's playing, the way it was handled last night, it kind of feels like Wiggins is back in, well, he's a good salary matching salary if we make a trade territory. Um, Has Wiggins gone back to like where that salary is maybe even a net negative asset because it's he's just been so across the board bad this season well it's a major issue for them because they have invested a lot in him and he was i mean look i saw it with my own eyes from really close range in that title run i mean he was so good in the dallas series i mean it was the best Mm. he had ever played and i mean he was a huge part of that championship run there's just no way to to deny that but he just Last season and now this season, I mean, it's been such a significant drop-off from that level. Again, that's why I say the Warriors, you know, the Draymond Green issue is front and center and his availability. I mean, they are two and six when Draymond, I I believe that's right, two and six when Draymond is either suspended or gets ejected. And it's been, you know, there's been three ejections already. I love that that has to be included in the stat. (laughs) Like, So, you know, not having him available has been a huge thing. But, I mean, you can really make the case that given everything going on with both Draymond and Clay, that, you know, Wiggins' inability to get back to that level we saw in the title run, I mean, that's as as significant as anything the Warriors are facing. It's a... It's it's just a shame watching it from afar. Honestly. That was a deep sigh. That's no, a deep you know, sigh you normally save for you know tomorrow morning when the Raptors have dropped their seventh of eight. Well, uh, hopefully not. Hopefully not. No, but seriously, I I do. I, it's hard not to as a casual observer like, at least admire. Your favorite non-Raptors watch is that why? I I think so because I I think for me it's just like they played basketball obviously very differently. They have Steph, but even the way they played defensively has been really creative and. I don't know. Eventually, you see a dynasty last for this long. Like you just you you grow attachment to it, you know. And it's this is like if it's the not, Spurs it's like not, it's not supposed to last this long. And that I, I know, but and that's where I think all of us on the outside struggle. What's wrong with the Warriors? Well, are you supposed to be good for a decade? No, but this is like if like the Spurs towards the end of it, Tim Duncan just started randomly like fighting people and like <laughs> Tony Parker were like uh, was just shooting terrible shots like Clay right now. 
and then just like taunting the crowd every game. It's just like guys, like you gotta you gotta keep it together to a certain degree. Um, yeah, well, on, on the subject of championships, I, I saw in your um, your Substack that you were able to interview Rick Carlisle, um, and you know I, I didn't see this before, but this really caught my eye. The idea that when Rick Carlisle was uh, head coach of the Mavericks still in 2020. He had really pushed the organization to try to move up in some way to, to essentially put themselves in a position where they could draft uh, Tyrese Halliburton. Just just the idea of Tyrese Halliburton and Luka Doncic playing together is just uh, really, really fun. But tell us about that conversation and, and just how much, uh, you know, Rick has grown in his time in Indiana. Well, yeah, I mean, the, probably the most interesting thing, I think, when, when, you know, Rick Carlisle was never known as this, freewheeling offensive coach and certainly the Mavericks had some great offenses in his in the latter stages of his time there because you, if you've got Luka Doncic you're pretty much guaranteed a top five or even top three offense but just the way they're playing now I mean I even asked him I said I mean you're like this is this is Doug Moe stuff are you really comfortable playing you know a team that skews so offense first but I mean Halliburton is such such a joy, I think, for him to coach. <coughs> Sorry, I I, ta- I um I bring it up to him every time I run into Rick because he still spends some off season time in Dallas. And I I <coughs> I've mentioned to him like you just you just seem so lucky and happy to have this young guy to build around, and he certainly that's certainly the impression he leaves. Yeah, I, I liked uh, one of the quotes he gave you was. You know, like the job of the coach is to adapt and bring out the best of whatever roster is in front of him. And certainly, when you had different rosters with like a Jason Kidd and and you're and you got Dirk Nowitzki, like you're definitely going to run offense in a structured way. And you know, because you have these high IQ players who can really execute and really pick teams apart, as we saw obviously at the peak in 2011. But you know, now when you have Tyrese Halliburton as your number one guy, he identified our team just needs to run. And whoever can run with us and play in this style is ultimately going to thrive long-term. Uh, well, I agree with you that that to me was, that was actually to me the most interesting answer because he, um, he said, you know, I'm not even sure what modern defense is anymore. Yeah. I like that, that he admitted that. When it's someone, when it's someone who's been around the block, like he has in his coach, been a head coach for so long and struggles to identify the best way you know, for defenses to operate. And, and, you know, he had, he made an interesting point that, you know, you used to say that offense was read and react, you know, so many teams would play read and react offense, but you know, his point was now that defenses almost have to be read and react because of, you know, how, you know, the, the fast pace that teams are playing and, you know, how the three point shot has obviously, you know, teams are taking 43 the night and stretching the floor. So it was really interesting, but yeah, the, the, that main point you referenced. I mean, I you know I, we, I was doing it on my Dallas radio show, and I mm-hmm. told him I said I don't know that we should. I don't know that I can even react to that because I think Mavs fans, if they start imagining having having Luca and Halliburton <laughs> together, that might that that might be too tantalizing for them to listen to. Uh, the the other interview you you did on your show recently was with Jamal Mosley of the Magic, and the Magic are an interesting counter. It, I thought it was very fitting to have those two coaches back to back, not only because they're in different points of kind of their coaching career, but the Magic are the other feel good story in the Eastern Conference, and they shoot fewer threes than any other team in the league, and they've got it done mostly by figuring out as much as you can now that defensive side of things. 
Um, Mark, I mean, what? Are, how impressed have you been with Mosley? And, and, you know, there are some Western Conference candidates too, but are you just trying to check off your Coach of the Year ballot interviews early here? What are you doing? Yeah, well, it's funny because sometimes it works that, you know, I mean, you guys know, I mean, you guys, you guys have to get, you guys got to get guests five days a week. I only have to do it once in a while. So you guys know that sometimes you just get fortunate and things happen. And yeah, I mean, uh, the Rick Carlisle thing happened because, they were in the in-season tournament finals, and I was able to talk him into a quick 10-minute uh, visit on the radio. And the, Jamal Mosley was actually my podcast with Chris Haynes. So um, a lot of people want to talk to him right now because the team is, is doing so well, and, you know, they are an absolute surprise. But Jamal Mosley was the defensive coordinator in Dallas before he became head coach in Orlando. So defense, obviously, I think is something that means a, a huge deal to him and to get you know, nobody had Orlando competing for a top three seed in the East, but even more so, I think none of us so-called experts had Orlando becoming a top defensive team, especially with, you know, the injuries that they've had, you know, with, with, with no Carter and no Fultz for a lot of the season already. So, I mean, getting, getting a young team to buy in defensively is huge. It's a huge credit to him and, you know, obviously they they do it differently offensively with the ball in the hands of Bancaro and Franz Wagner so much. So they're they're an interesting team. I'm actually I'm going to the G League showcase next week because obviously we you know that's that's kind of like the NBA's winter meetings. But it'll be my there's a, the Magic are playing host to Miami during that during the showcase, and it'll be my first that'll be my first Orlando game in ages. I can't even remember the last time I was there for a game and from everything I've heard the crowd there has gotten really good. I mean I think mm. that I think the Orlando Magic fan community is really excited about this team in a way like it hasn't been for years. Yeah, certainly. I remember being down there for 2019 when the Raptors played them in the first round and uh there was there was no, I can tell you there was no excitement in the building <laughs> for uh Raps Magic uh despite the Magic taking game 1 somehow. Uh Mark, we appreciate you. We've run out of time to ask you about uh Manchester City slide, um, you know, it, it, you know, we'll, we'll see if you guys finally drop a Premier League once in a while. But, you know, uh, we'll, we'll, I'm, I'm sure we have actual more important topics to talk about in terms of basketball. So I appreciate you. We can talk footy, we can talk footy anytime, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm guessing the NBA stuff is slightly more interesting to your audience. Uh, to the audience, yes. We'll but see how the Raptors season keeps going. Yeah, I was gonna say, man, my uh, my watching of Liverpool on the weekends is is certainly jumping my uh, watching the Raptors throughout the week, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that we're gonna was. Have to get you to, we're gonna have to get you to Anfield. We got to work on that. We really do. Um, all right, that NBA Insider was presented by Coors Light. Go from full time to game time. Coors Light made to chill. Big thanks once again to Mark Stein. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the Draymond thing, like, there's like, um, there's entire highlight reels now of him, like, just making these like clearly, like, facetious, uh, cynical just genuinely, like, physically abusive plays. Like, there's playing sports, there's playing hard. Appreciate all of that. Draymond is obviously a great defender, a huge winner. Those things you can't ever take away from him. But, like, even going forward, like, people are just going to remember him for some of these other moments as well. Like, there's, like, he's done everything from, like, kicking a guy in the nuts to, like, punching a guy in the nuts to, like, uh, wrestling guys out of midair to flipping guys over to stomping on their chest to choking a guy out, to, like, punching guys in the face. Like, I'm just honestly, I'm, at a certain point, I'm surprised that no one in the league has really, like, stepped back and pushed back at him. I wonder if that's because, I mean, first of all, you don't want to 
like I think the messaging, especially in a playoff environment yeah. from a coach, is probably don't get dragged into Draymond stuff. Right. Because if you're a you know if you're a key player, like if you're Rudy Gobert, mm-hmm. and you get into it with Draymond, and you both get tossed, mm-hmm. at this stage, that's a win for the Warriors. Draymond has yeah. taken a better player out of the game. It's you know it's more of a hockeyism that like whoever the worst player is that gets in a fight won the fight because you took a better player off the ice for the other team. Like I th- I wonder if that's kind of the messaging from coaches. Like don't get down to Draymond's level. The whole point is for him to get under your skin, and if you react, he's won. Right. So I mean that's not obviously that's probably hard to do after he smacks you in the face or uh, <laughs> below the belt or whatever. Um, but yeah. certainly in a playoff series, like if I'm on that coaching staff, that is a key messaging point for me. And it feels like this season in particular, he's on edge to the point where it's like you can probably bait him into doing these things. And I, th- I think it works for him if he is able to have that control to step back and say I pushed you to the line and then you stepped over. Draymond is now just actively jumping over that line right. for and, fun. And, like, like the, maybe the messaging now is, like, if they get to the playoffs from another team is, like, bait him. Yeah. Because he's lost. We've said for so many years, even when Draymond was, like, at his very best, is, like, you know, in that, that historic seven-game series that he got suspended for a game in, of, like, Draymond, if he is just up to the line, it's so valuable and so <laughs> effective. Yep. And, like, yep. in addition to his play, it's an extra level. But, like, the line is thin, and if he crosses over it and you lose Draymond Green for an entire NBA Finals game, and now I think, yeah, I think you're right. He has lost his sense of where that line is and how to tow it. Like, And to to do this stuff in, like, not all that big a spot, like, not super meaningful games, not... There was no buildup. It wasn't like him and Nurkic were going back and forth or even, like, even the Gobert thing. They got a history, I guess, of competing over the defensive player. You're like, what? Yeah. Imagine if Jokic just randomly choked out uh, Embiid because Embiid took MVP this last year. Like, what are we doing here? Um, I also enjoy the fact that he's got beast with like more than half the Western Conference now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you last, you stick around long enough at that level, you probably just just have the beefs. Um, By the way, speaking of of that Suns game, to to pivot out of the Warriors, uh, Shams Tarani are reporting that even though tonight is the second night of a back to back for the Suns, they play the Warriors last night, they host the Nets tonight. We're finally going to get to see the big three together oh. for the first time this year. Booker, Beal, and Durant will will suit up together. Yeah, I'm going to have that on as I watch Raptors Hawks at the arena. Can't wait. But uh, speaking of Raptors Hawks, time now for Between the Lines, brought to you by Bet Rivers. Take a chance. Raptors minus one and a half. Um, Blake, typically, you know, I ask I, you ask me for this, but I want to ask you: How do you think the Raptors match up with Atlanta for this meeting? Especially concerning the fact that both these two teams really need this. Raps at nine and fourteen, Hawks at nine and thirteen. Yeah, not not only are they, you know, they both need it, but they're having some of the same issues right now, which is, you know, neither the Raptors lately and the Hawks for the last seven years can't defend. Mm, and okay. look, the Raptors, I think, are in more control of that. They are a good defensive personnel team that we have seen for like the first month of the season defend really well. And they just haven't over the last month without much change to the personnel. So they have that gear. Atlanta doesn't. We're going to talk to Steve Jones Jr. about this in the next segment. But, like, even with Trey getting a little better defensively, like, obviously, if Trey Young is your point guard, and even if he's not guarding the point of attack guy, that's a big weakness to have defensively on the floor for 38 minutes a game. That's going to cost your defense a little bit. But there have been teams that survive that. 
there have been teams that, you know, get a guy to play up to a certain level. Um, and, and that's what we'll talk to Steve about with Trey Young. But even with that, they are like 27th in defense, 26th in defense, sorry. So, you know, that's kind of front of mind. The Hawks also have a weird thing where, you know, if we look at margin of victory, if we control for strength of schedule and things like that, the Raptors deserve their 9-14 and 14 record. Mm. The Hawks have been pretty unlucky okay. at 9-13. and 13. So right. if we adjust for strength of schedule and margin of victory or margin of loss and things like that, the Hawks actually come out as a slightly positive team on the year, whereas the Raptors are like, they have the negative adjusted net rating of the team you would think is 9-14. and 14. The Hawks have actually, you know, on balance... They should be 500. Metrically, they should yeah. be a 500, maybe even a game above 500. So that probably makes them a little hungrier. It probably makes them a little more dangerous than a 9-13 and 13 record suggests. They're also a top five offense. Yep. So if you're the Raptor, if you're a Raptors team that has not played defense particularly well, um, and, and a couple things to watch for, they play at the third fastest pace in the league. They are second in transition offense. Um, they're only 13th in three-point percentage, but their top five players by field goal attempts all shoot the three well. It's only kind of the depth guys and their two bigs that don't shoot the three. So everyone can knock down a three. So offensively, I think this is a problem for the Raptors. The one thing is, in addition to Jalen Johnson Mm -hmm. being out, um, Kobe Bufkin, who we really haven't seen yet, is out. Their Mogay is out. Um, They also have one. Uh, But Adrian Griffin's been ruled out for this one for personal reasons. So one of their depth wings, who we haven't seen a lot, but is maybe in the mix when you already have that many injuries. It's wild that you call him Adrian Griffin. I was like, what? Oh, right. Adrian Griffin. Griffin. Sorry. Um, And DeAndre Hunter's questionable. Uh Trey Young's even on the injury report as well. He's probable, but he's been dealing with a shoulder thing. It seemed like he went through walkthroughs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and like it didn't sound like anyone's too concerned about DeAndre Hunter, but that could be on the radar as well. Um and I think what I'm getting at here with the two teams having been playing good defense and the Hawks offense is really good. The over-under for this is 240.5. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I think the Raptors on paper should be able to use their size and, you know, really dominate the paint against Atlanta. Now, of and course, the, the you would Hawks expect Atlanta to... Defensively. Yeah, and you would expect Atlanta to obviously probably make six, seven, eight more threes than the Raptors. So the Raptors really do going to make up a huge gap. And that's why this matchup should be close. But once again, I'm here to ask you, does anyone really know which version of the Raptors will show up on any given night? So I, I don't. And that's it's why it's going to be you a meltdown eat. if they lose tonight, man. Even something like the Hawks, the Hawks are number two in the league in how many rim and corner three attempts you give up. So the two most efficient spots on the floor, there's only one team that does it worse than them. And I don't know that I trust the Raptors to take advantage of that mm. because the rim is usually off limits for them. Because they can't hit threes and defenses just get to go like this and, and clog yep. the paint for Scotty and Pascal. So no pick for me until I see the Raptors get back to just any semblance of just consistent play. Uh, but that was Between the Lines brought to you by Brett Rivers. Take a chance. All right, we're going to take our last break of the show today. I've been your host, Willow. You've been listening to the Raptors show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Big guests and bigger opinions on everything happening in Leafsland. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I'm your host, Wayne Lou. Joined for the fourth segment uh, today by co-host Blake Murphy. And- I'm just here all day, every day. I'm know. just like your co-host for like 98% of segments. It is true. It is 98%. And uh, joining us for the first time this season, but hopefully not the last time, is Steve Jones Jr. of uh, the Dunker Spot 
Pod, former NBA assistant coach and also video coordinator. Um, Steve, how you doing, man? Oh, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I am here for one percent, I guess. There you go. I wanted to make sure I joined in. Yeah, and it's uh, it's great to have you, man. Big fan of your work on Twitter and on the the Dunker Spot Pod. Um, look, I know you you kind of jump around the league, look at different teams night to night, and break down the film. Let's start with the Raptors because I mean, one, we're oh, we're getting buddy. a little tired of those talking points here, but um, you know, what is your read on this team, particularly on the offensive side of the ball um, from afar? There's more positives than negatives oh. I think, based on some of the talk. And I, I found a few, so no worries there. Now, obviously, being 20th in offensive rating when you're trying to add more movement doesn't feel great, but you do have some balanced scoring. So you got six players averaging 10-plus points per game. The Raptors are fourth in the league in assists. Last year, they were 23rd. So I looked up this year, 67.5% of their made field goals have been assisted. Last year, I think it was like 57%. The issue is how much has it changed how teams feel about them? Mm. Is the pace any different? Is there any other difference movement-wise? Like, I think movement is a good thing, but I I just have it. I'll tell you what happened. There was a game, I think it was Philly, early November. Uh, the Raptors were shooting 50% from the field, 71% from three, had 24 points in the first quarter, but also had a three-minute scoring drop. And I was like, wow, that's a lot to unpack. But... There are more positives than people think. Mm. You know, I like that. I like that because uh, there are no positives when you cover this team. On a no, I'm kidding. Um, no, I, I think <laughs> it's a good perspective, though, because they are obviously running things differently. I think the conclusion for a lot of teams, especially now against the starting lineup in particular, where you see teams going under against Dennis Schroeder, where you see that, okay, they're definitely taking away the paint. Um, and when Pascal and, and Scotty post up and Jakob's defender at the center is almost always helping over uh, and providing extra bodies, I think the opposing overwhelming response from the defenses are like, what are you going to do, shoot against me? Right? Because, like, the Raptors just don't have enough shooting. So I guess, like, the system probably gets you a better result in the end, but based on this current roster and the skill sets there, like, is there some way? Like, can they run something magically different that 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 gets them more scoring despite the fact that they can't hit the three at a consistent level at all? It's less about can they run something different. It's more how do they run their current sets and okay. what do they do after it. So for me, movement's a good thing, but it's not an automatic. You still need pressure points. Like I always point back to like the process sixers. Like when they first started with Brett Brown, they ran all the Spurs sets. Mm. And then it was great until you realized, oh, we're still fine. We can, we can stay in front. We're good. And so my issue if it comes to Toronto is – how hard are the cuts that you're making? Mm. How good is the tempo in the half court? Are you going side to side? Are you getting multiple action? Or is it just, this is the set, we ran that, now we drive? And <laughs> can you get to drive and kick behind that? Okay. So yeah. it's kind of that combination of factors where, okay, I feel like I can go under. And you're trying, what, a dribble handoff to Siakam, I'm mm. going under. You're playing through Jakob Pertle with Schroeder, I'm going under. Mm. What can you do to make me not play drop or switch? And if you do well... Uh, can you be the zone after that? I think for me, it's more the best sets for Toronto this year has been when one action flows to the next, there's cutting, there's a random screen after the first set. That's when they really start moving and grooving. Defenses aren't cooperating, and Toronto has put more pressure on them to just force the issue a little bit, in my opinion. So would you say then one of the more telling stats about this Raptors team to explain you know, what they're trying to do and what they're 
failing to do is that their number of cuts per second spectrum way, way up this year. They cut mm-hmm. off the ball way, way, way more often. They are the third worst team on a points per possession basis finishing off of cuts. Does that kind of snapshot what we're talking about here? Good, better process, but still not quite able to execute it? I, that That's pretty on point. I, I like that stat. And I, I wish they had more cuts, you know? I just, I, I go back to just, who is the pressure point for this Raptor team? Who's forcing a defense to send two people to the ball? Right. If it's not Scotty Barnes against someone smaller or Pascal against someone smaller or Pascal on those nights when he has it going, defenses are usually fine. And I think that's the thing. And it's not new for the Raptors. Mm-hmm. I mean, I go back to last year. It was like, okay, you guys have a bunch of wings, a bunch of switches. Now you have Fred Van Bleet and Yaka Pertle, And, oh, defenses have to guard that. And now it's Dennis Schroeder, and we feel comfortable either going under or dropping. And now – you throw in some tempo, some pace, some random possessions, the early offense. I honestly think the defense taking a step back has hurt as well. Yeah. Because you don't get some of the easy baskets, and now you're having to live in the half court. So I, I think that's been tough. But you've seen growth from some of these guys. The process feels better. There's results. It's just not changing the overall perspective from defenses. For sure. So when you talk about, you know, what is bending a defense, what is creating that first fire that a defense has to adjust to and rotate through this Raptors, you know, the fact that the system is coming along, but they're not, you know, the three point shooting isn't there. The effectiveness off of cuts isn't there. When you watch Scotty Barnes and Pascal Siakam, who are obviously even against great attention, still able to score, right? Scotty has a, on both sides of the pick and roll, certainly in transition, he's taken a real step forward offensively. Pascal, we know if he gets a mismatch, even if he doesn't, he can take it into the post and pass or score out of there. How much more difficult is the Raptors offensive environment making things for those two guys, though? I, I, I think I think it's the overall context. They they could use a table setter. They could use someone like my, in my head after you said that, I think who's their toughest person to guard in pick and roll on handoffs? Is it just Gary Trent Jr.? Oof. Is he just the person that's going to make you come to the level? So how many how many things can you have where we get two on the ball if Scotty's uh, involved and now I can kick it to Pascal? How many plays like that do you see? How many times can OG, if he's going to play off everyone, how many times is he facing a tilted defense? Is he able to drive those closeouts? So I think it's a blend of the, I think the roster construction is kind of biting them a little bit where it's not just shooting. It's more just like, I am fine defending this person right now. Mm-hmm. I am fine with what y'all are doing movement-wise because eventually, you know, you're going you're gonna to go with a dribble handoff. I'm going to slide under. You do a rescreen. We're going to stay in the drop. We're going to make you make these shots. And that's where I feel like Toronto has to kind of change the game. Yeah. Um, defensively, the Raptors have, especially under Nick, there has been so creative. Uh, you never really knew what they were going to do night to night. They'll change their coverages so much more than you would see from a typical NBA team. Like, James Harden's in town. We're going to trap him a half-court all game in November. Uh, then Joel Embiid's in town. We're going to, you know, do probably double team, but a lot of zoning behind him, all that kind of stuff. Like, they would just consistently be different night to night. You're seeing the Raptors go to a much more simplified defensive approach this year. Darko has already talked about. It's even more simple than what they did in Memphis. Um, but why are the Raptors struggling so much defensively? Because it feels like there's a lot of defensive talent on the personnel and it doesn't make sense that they're getting so little out of it. Uh, I would say the difference is they are they're just in their base. 
And so you don't feel the same Raptors pressure. You don't feel okay. the same effect from their length. If you watch them navigate pick and rolls, how often are they getting into bodies and how often are they just trying to get around the screen? Uh, if they're in a drop with Jacoperto, how often is the offensive player leading the dance and attacking the space? And how often does it feel like, whoa, there's a lot of length here? Mm-hmm. Look at the closeouts um, from Toronto this year. It's very solid, which is okay, except you probably need your defense to be at a certain level, and you're letting offenses just kind of run their sets comfortably for the most part. And I think that's probably the biggest difference. Um, when they crank it up and turn it up, sometimes it looks different, but otherwise they're just kind of there. I think they need to turn up the activity and make offenses feel them. Yeah, yeah that's a that's a tough one. And like you said earlier, uh, it, that also affects your uh, transition offense, which is the you know the easy or stuff to get. Um, what, what do you make of, we, we talked about this at the start of the season a little bit, you know, with Nick Nurse's teams that were hyper-aggressive and changing the scheme and stuff like that, may, one school of thought is probably, well, if you train this in and then have to dial it back later, maybe that's easier. The philosophy this year seems to be more, hey, let's get the base stuff down pat, and then if we need to scheme differently for a star or, or change something up, it's easier to add after the fact. Do you have a, a feeling on which of those is you know easier to execute as a coaching staff? I, I think it's easier to execute, hey, let's just establish our base first and then build on if we need to as the season goes on. So if we face a great opponent, we can go to a trap or you know, if we're you know facing a great three-point shooting, a non-three-point shooting team, we can add in zone, those kind of things. It's easier to establish the base. The tougher part is when your base is not working as well mm. and your defense is not showing up as well. It's not like you've done two or three different things, if that makes sense. So you have to kind of maintain and fix your base to get it back to a certain level and now try and ramp back up. And so now you might find yourself caught in a game where, oh, this person's going off a little bit. We need to add a trap. Have we worked on the rotations behind that? Yeah. And that's the thing. This season we've seen the Raptors, I mean, you're going to have to trap certain players. Uh, Giannis comes to the town. You're probably going to have to send two defenders at him. Joel Embiid comes into town. And the Raptors have tried in, in those instances where, you know, they're, they're sending two to the ball, but the rotations behind, as, as you're mentioning, is just like, it just doesn't, it's not on point. Like, Darko has to consistently call timeouts because they probably wa- went through it and walked through or even pregame, but then as soon as it happens in the game, now they got to call one or two timeouts to A, stop the run, but also B, correct a pretty, pretty prominent point in the scouting report. See some zones now come into the Raptors defensively as well. So you're, you are seeing it built out, but again, like, the, the Raptors aren't good defensively, bottom line. If they're not, like, top 10 defensively, this team is not a playoff team. This team's nowhere even near a playoff team because offensively the kind of limit is what it is. Um, on the other side of things, the Raptors are playing the Hawks tonight. Um, tell me about the Hawks because I feel like the Hawks, you know, they're just consistently around that 500 mark this year, maybe even a little bit more underwhelming than expected. Um, what are the Hawks doing differently this year? And can they reach a level where, you know, they need to get to – um, I don't know, being an actual top six playoff team. It's funny you mentioned how important defense is to the Raptors because defense is very important to the Hawks, and they just have not been able to find a way to accomplish that portion of the program. Fifth in offensive rating, which is fantastic, which are 27th in defensive rating, so you're giving it right back. I think for me with Atlanta, it's making sure they keep their balance offensively. I think they miss Jalen Johnson, but when you have Trey Young, DeJounte, DeAndre Hunter, you're moving the ball, you you have different handoffs, pick and roll, you're not predictable offensively, that's when the Hawks are at their best. 
I think the issue is they're leaning a little bit more on Trey and DeJounte over the last four and five games to just create plays and pick and roll, which is okay, but it's not the same force they had earlier in the season where they were a little less predictable. There's a little bit more movement to them. And I think defensively, they're trying to find it. Like they started the season active, two on the ball, really trying to just rotate behind it and play active. Now they're kind of going back towards their drop defense, which is okay because you have Clint Capella, but now, okay, where are our help points? Are we back to closing out and getting beat off the dribble? Can we make multiple efforts? So they're kind of in that same boat there to a degree. So in, on the defensive end, you know, one thing I've noticed when I, I check into the Hawks, and certainly I've seen people who cover the Hawks talk about it, it does seem like Trey Young's gotten a little better on the defensive end, at least a little bit more effortful. Um, obviously, when he's playing, you know, 36, 38, 40 minutes a game for you, that's going to cause some limitations for your defense. You got to hide him or, you know, send a lot of help to the point of attack. Have you seen Trey Young t- take at least some steps defensively this year? Yes, I, I think Trey Young's been way more active defensively this year. I think he's done a better job as far as when he's on the weak side. He's in he's in earlier help. He's more active as far as stunts and digging and making sure he's a part of the program as opposed to just standing on the weak side. That's a plus. I think he's done a better job navigating screens defensively to where at least, hey, I'm going to do my job. If I'm guarding the ball and we're running pick and roll, I'm going to get into it and fight over. Those little things help as opposed to what was going on before. Still someone that's going to be attacked late in games. I imagine you'll see it in this Raptors game if it's close. But he's done a better job of anticipating early, trying to show and recover. It, it's it's just a whole process. The whole team just has to kind of uplift and improve their efforts together. Yeah, You know, it's, it's funny listening to the perspectives on both the Raptors and Atlanta because, to me, I'm thinking about how much work coaching staff put into training camps and in the summer and all the work that leads up to it. You have this great idea in mind. And then after like probably 10 games or so, <laughs> guys just slip and regress or at least they feel more comfortable with what they already knew. Um, having been on the inside, like how much is that a factor as well? That buy-in from the players? Oh, it's the biggest thing. You, yeah. you need the buy-in. You can have all the X's, no schemes, ideas you want. If the buy-in doesn't come from the players, your ceiling is lower. And so ideally, you want to have a hot start where players buy into it. Now they see success, they buy into it more. And now you can kind of elevate from there because you got belief. If you are trying new things or trying different things and it doesn't work out, you're not getting the results. Now you're trying to search a little bit. It becomes, what are we doing? Mm -hmm. And now guys are believing we should be doing one thing. It can can go off the rails pretty quick. But that buy-in is number one, two, and three for me. So when you look at this Hawks team, look, obviously where the Raptors are right now, there's going to be a lot of talk about them as potential uh, a potential trade seller between now and the deadline, same as last year where it, it didn't end up happening. But um, the Hawks are a team that we know wanted Pascal Siakam in the offseason. Th- those conversations got to at least at the exchanging hypothetical names portion of, of the talk. When you look at where the Hawks are, do you see a Pascal Siakam fit there if they revisited that? I definitely see a fit. I guess my secondary question would be like, how much better does it make them? He fits with what they want to do. Uh, his ability to score, they could lean on him in the half court. You would probably see a lot of Trey Young screening for Pascal in late game situations, a la Fred Van Vliet screening for Pascal. So I think it would give them a big boost in the Eastern Conference. How much of the needle is that going to move? Mm. Um, that is my, probably my only concern or question with that. Yeah. But yes, he, he he'd be good as a hawk. 
Well, I, I don't have any doubts about that. I, my questions are more like, okay, what are the Raptors getting back in the sense? Because you probably would be able to get back, like, let's say two guards and a wing, and maybe guys who can hopefully all shoot in that instance. You know, we haven't seen that much of Kobe Bufkin in, as a pro, but, you know, I certainly liked him coming into the draft. I know the Raptors worked him out twice. I was the only guy they worked out twice. Uh, that was also why it was surprising the Raptors passed on him because they had the position to draft him. AJ Griffin, we saw him have, well, I mean, Raptor fans need no introduction. He hit two game winners essentially on the Raptors last year. Kind of situation. Uh, hasn't been in uh, Quinn Snyder's rotation as much this year. Um, and I don't think he's playing tonight for for some reason. But, you know, I guess on the Raptors side, because we, we, we spoke so much about spacing and sort of like what this team could do just better. But also, you bring in different personnel to this group. Maybe some of what Darko wants to do offensively with this team looks even better in terms of at least the results wise having guys who can capitalize with with guards who in this instance like the raptors are missing guards man like they might have like no offense to the guys here but it, it's it's a bottom five guard rotation in the league is that because of the shooting it's, it's shooting but it's also the playmaking a little bit man like it's it's both like the raptors have so many issues with guards getting into touching the paint or forcing guys to close out to them, draw two as, you know, play, pick, and roll. Like, these things are, like, uh, unless it's, like, Dennis throwing a little bounce pass to Jakob, and they're pretty good at that. They are they are great at that one play, but it's just not dynamic enough, in my opinion. But love to hear yours. Uh, no, it's fair. I was I was trying to gauge the, the vibes, because I know shooting and spacing is a big thing. That's all we talk when, about when here. When you're 30th in three-point shooting, it's going to come up. Here, man. It's going to come up. <laughs> Um, uh, my, my, my thing is, I would say, is there are ways to generate spacing, even if you okay. don't have the best shooting. I'll just keep that in the back of your brain. Mm. I know it's tough. Yeah. Just, hey, it, it, yeah. you just, I, I'd ask you this. Would you rather have a knockdown shooter or someone you know could drive a closeout every time? Just right now. I mean, it's kind For of a Schrodinger thing because if you're not a knockdown shooter, are the closeouts coming at you hard enough to drive by them? Like, like Norman Powell is a great corner closeout attacker, but he had to get to that like high 30s level of three-point shooting before anyone closed out on him hard enough for him to drive by, right? Yeah, but for this team specifically, I, 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 give me the knockdown shooter. I'm yeah. not kidding. Post up, Scotty. Yeah, post up, Pascal. Knock, give me put a him on the strong side. Boom. Percent three-point shooter. Not even knockdown. Yeah. Just passable. Sorry. I, I asked that question to set up my return appearance. That's all I did. <laughs> yeah. No, we'll, we'll definitely get you back on the program because this is great. I think it's also, I don't know, maybe it's your background. Maybe it's just how you are, but, like, it's, it's very soothing, you know, <laughs> hearing this. It, it's not just us being every day being like, these guys can't shoot. What's going on? Front office move, you know? Like, so we appreciate you for bringing levity and your perspective. Hey, I, I try my best to help. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> I appreciate you. Steve Jones. Uh, you know what? Our energy is kind of wild actually thinking about it. Yeah, man. it's been a tough couple weeks. Yeah, um, it really has been. Anyway, make sure you check out the Dunker Spot podcast. Seriously. Steve's, yeah. uh, I mean, Steve on Twitter as well is great because Yo. he does bring that video coordinator and mm -hmm. um, assistant coach background. He's at Steve Jones 20 on Twitter. And, and yeah, he goes all around the NBA on that podcast and with this yeah. Twitter feed. Really informative and you learn a lot X's and O's wise yeah. uh, following him and listening. And uh, honestly, I mean, it's good that we gave him the plug, but he doesn't need the plug, man. No, he's, he he's, doesn't. He's on with potential Raptors head coach JJ Redick on a weekly basis. Yeah. That I mean, they've, got, they've also got the Coach's Corner segment where they bring yes. coaches on and talk to them. It's all really great stuff and, yeah. and you know, really does make you smarter as, as a basketball watcher. Absolutely. I felt smarter just doing that interview.
so anyway, we are done here for today. I've been your host, Willow. You've been listening to The Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Make sure you find The Raptor Show wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe, but please rate and review the show. Thanks once again to Jonte Porter, Mark Spears, Mark Stein, Steve Jones, producer and co-host Alex Wong. I hope you enjoyed your pho. Uh Blake Murphy, our board producer, Derek Brandale, Jen Rolnick, David says Jeremy Manitai helping behind the scenes. Raptors, please, please, please win tonight.